Hello. We're high above Omaha Beach over the Bay of Seine off the coast of France. And it's the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And we're broadcasting from the Castle's Unlimited Blimp. And now comes the best, most informative, super entertaining, and topical real estate show ever produced. I'm Jim Lowenstern, and my co-host is Larry Lawfer, and our show is Broker Talk. Hello, Larry. How's it going today? Good afternoon, Jim. It's been a great day so far, and thank you to all the service members who have uh, given their lives and given their time. In fact, in the studio today, we have George Papadopoulos from Berkshire Hathaway. He is our guest. He is a uh, former Marine, uh, Green Beret, uh, developer, real estate agent. There is nothing this man hasn't done. Thank you for your service, George. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So, George, uh, let me ask you a question. I've listened to your story, but could we just narrow it down to the real estate and the development part? You come from a family who was developing projects in Brooklyn in the 50s. Would you like to talk about that for a moment? Yes, uh, I could say I'm a third-generation developer, but first-generation in North America, and my great-grandfather after the Second World War from Greece came over to the States, and everybody pretty much at that time was landing in New York and uh, started as a janitor in a building. Very familiar story. He worked himself up, saved some money, bought a building, bought a second building, and then the kids bought buildings, and by the time we know it, we're owning several brownstones, or most most of all the places, I could say, my grandfather owned uh, probably 80 units in Williamsburg, Brooklyn in the early 80s. Wow, that's amazing. He, if he owned them now, he'd be sitting on a pile of money. I wouldn't be sitting here either. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and back then, I used to help him uh, manage the properties. His English was kind of broken, and uh, most of uh, what I did is uh, work on the weekends, go turn around apartments that uh, were coming up for rent, you know, clean them up, paint them up. Uh, and I was making a pretty good uh, weekend living, you could say, as a teenager, and just working a few days a month. I met you just recently where one of my investor clients is purchasing one of your properties. And when I met you, I was just fascinated by your focus and how you go about your business. Can you elaborate a little bit what your sweet spot is and how that works here in in Massachusetts? Well, I've been in Massachusetts for almost 20 years, since 1996. And uh, what brought me up here actually was one of my other businesses at that time, which happens to be a franchise. And uh, it's a franchise that everybody knows. It's Carvel Ice Cream. And at that time, I was probably one of the youngest franchisees. Cookie Puss. Yes, Fudgy the Whale, Cookie Puss. Oh, by the way, Father's Day is coming up. Uh, and everybody buys the Fudgy the Whale because it's the whale of a dad. But getting back to it. Is Carvel even still in business? It, it is actually not as a retail store in the state of Massachusetts, but they're in the supermarkets. But we own one of the family in Watertown, Connecticut, since 1954. Um, my mother worked there as a teenager. I worked there as a teenager. The whole family has been through that system. Uh, and that's what brought me to Brockton, Massachusetts. And Brockton, Massachusetts, back in 96, 97, uh, a very big, you know, three-family uh, kind of town. And uh, it was started up and coming and so forth. And... I started getting a little bit of pulse of the real estate market over there, and I started buying in the early 2000s. 
And the property that uh, my investor is buying from you and the way that you talked about it was most interesting to me. It's in Dorchester. It's not too far from Mattapan. Many investors would shy away from areas where uh, there's uh, can be higher crime. What you did was you identified a street within that community, went into that purchased a property at a at a really good price, and then you go in and you rehab it. Would you talk about your rehab philosophy? Well, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about identifying the property. Was this an on-market or off-market? Uh, Most of the properties it? I buy are not on the market, and if they're on the market, they're usually at auctions. Depending times of the real estate, like right now, you're not going to find a lot of foreclosures being sold out there unless they're so upside down the mortgage that nobody was willing to buy it and they have to go to foreclosure and then you know the bank buys it back and then the bank REOs it we know the whole story how it goes but early 2009 to 2012 foreclosures were big so I'll be buying a lot of these properties on foreclosures and I can say I bought a few properties on hubzoo.com I actually bought one property off my iPhone uh, and most of these properties even if they make it to MLS they're usually uh, abandoned nobody's living in them where the typical either FHA buyer or conventional loan buyer cannot purchase the property. It has to be a cash deal. And you, and you don't get any inspection, correct? I never do an inspection when I look at a property. Can, I uh, inspect it myself. Can you even have an inspection with a foreclosed property? Well, or auction property? Some properties, believe it or not, they give you the opportunity, they give you the lockbox code if you're working with a realtor, and you can enter the property. And those are the ones that are vacant. I never buy foreclosed property or property that's going for foreclosure where it has current tenants or owner occupied because then it will take you maybe another six months to a year to finalize, especially if it's owner occupied, to get them out. So usually the properties that I buy are already vacated and you could actually go see them before the bid is final bid coming up in a couple of days, let's say. So I do get a chance to go look at them. I never bring an inspector. I, I'm my own inspector. I look at the property. Um, I've probably done since 2012 at least combined 60 units, and I don't mean 60 buildings, I mean 60 apartments. Some units were 16-unit buildings, threes, sixes, but from 2012 up to now, I could say around 60 of them I've done. What attracted my investor to your property, I'm back to how you rehab, is the expense that you you went to to replace uh, electrical systems, uh, heating systems, um, and what you have in each unit. Let's talk about that for a moment. So doing this, of course, you have to have experience and have a good team to work with you. Um, probably the biggest complaint now that every developer has out there, including myself, it's hard to find a good plumber. That's, that's very common on everybody I talk to and the kind of skill I do as work. Um, now, regarding the rehab, when you're building your real estate portfolio and you're looking for the long term, you're gonna do things right and do things to last and kind of make it idiot proof. And this way, you don't have to do a lot of maintenance. If it's a turnaround apartment after three, four years, it's easy to go clean it up, paint it, get it back on the market as soon as possible because time is money. Um, now, the specific building, uh, I did buy it at a good price. I had to be a cash purchase. Um, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I do have that kind of cash to be able to buy these properties. Most of the investors I work with uh, go towards hard money loans, 
which uh, the viewers, sorry, the, the listeners of the show don't know what BAMAP mean. It means that there's uh, private lenders out there, not your conventional banks, which are licensed and give higher interest rates for these smaller developers or even general contractors that just want to do that flip. And uh, in this situation, I did buy the property cash, remodeled it cash. It's a rigorous process. It took me almost two years. And basically, how I go around is I pick three electricians. I get three bids. I don't go always with the cheapest bid. I go with the electrician that I felt confident enough that he's going to show up at the job. That's half the, the job, actually, just showing up and doing it in a good time. Because if he delays you, that means that's the less time you could put it off for rent. That means less income coming in for you, in your pocket. How mm -hmm. quickly do you fire people that are uh, not showing up? Uh, very quickly. Immediately? Uh, I give them a couple of chances, but then you know you have to hire another contractor. You have to he has to pull a permit again because the work that it, it gets complicated. So it's hard to cut somebody off in the middle or towards the end or the beginning of the project and find somebody else to take care of his mistakes sometimes because a lot of people don't want to take take on another person's job. So do you find that there are contractors who will only work in a certain area so that you can't use them on the next job? You have to find someone that not only has the time but works in that area, or do you have the same people working all the time? What happens after a while, if you build a reputation that first and most, he pays, right? Everyone, everybody wants to get paid. And second, if somebody knows what they're doing and they're not giving the contractors a hard time. The contractors don't want somebody to be nicky picky on top of them. Let them do their job. They're licensed to do their job. They have a pretty good idea what they're doing. And all you gotta do is, you know, not be on top of them, but manage the project in a way that it makes them feel comfortable to work for you. But when Friday comes and you pay them, they're going to show up again on Monday. On a percentage basis, uh, if you're doing a project, you want to price it at what percentage versus what you paid for it. In other words, you're going to buy it. There's work to go into it. On average, what, what kind of profit margin are you looking at? Everybody has a different formula. I work with a formula at least 20% for my time and effort that I'm going to put into the property, the risk factor. Remember, when you're buying these auction properties, you not know when you're going to go in there and open up that first wall, what's going to be behind that wall. You know, you're ripping off a roof and you're finding rotted wood underneath. That's an additional cost. So if you go into a project thinking that's going to cost you, let's say, $100,000, I want you to add another 20% on top of that for any mishaps, screw-ups, or whatever, something might went wrong, or even time delay because you got carry-on costs. You got, when you're doing a remodel, not a remodel, a construction or whatever, an abandoned property, it's called c construction insurance. It's not your typical ho homeowner's policy. It's almost triple the cost. You're paying your property taxes. You're paying your electric bill if there's any on the property yet. And what about if you had a mortgage on the property? So everything is time consuming will cost you money and the faster you finish the faster you get it rented faster money's coming in are you flipping these properties selling them or are you holding them as an investor to rent them i started off as an investor to rent them years ago all my multi-unit investment properties were going to be my portfolio and you could say my 401k plan people like us don't have a 401k plan we're self-employed and so forth and I don't believe in the stock market. Um, I was in the stock market, maybe in 2000. I got burned, like everybody else. 
With real estate, I believe it's a tangible good because you're, I could grab it, touch it, feel it, set the price. I have some sort of control. We don't have total control in this world. We all know that. But it's, it's, it's a tangible good. You, you could see it every day. And at the end of the day, you could say how much you're going to sell it for, how much you're going to rent it for, and what you're going to do with the property and how you're going to manage the property down the road. So all the properties that I did acquire as multi-units were for a long-term investment. So you were a buy-and-hold guy. A buy-and-hold guy, correct. That's why I, I do extensive renovation. And, you know, people will design cabinets and put particle board. They won't spend the extra two, $3,000 a kitchen to put furniture construction or plywood construction so it can last longer. Or tile, or somebody might put VCT tile. Well, that cracks, fades away, whatever. You put ceramic tile, more sturdy, long-lasting. All these little things add up. And, and in the unit that I'm, uh, my client is purchasing, you have granite in there, you have a high-end stove in there, you correct. have an oversized refrigerator in there, you did all, redid all the windows. Correct. Uh, it's, it was attractive. And more importantly, on the MLS, this was an MLS, that's where we found it, um, you put um, a worksheet on there that explained what, your, uh, what the investor could expect from their investment? So uh, it's, uh, it's a perform on the property and I call it the black and white because we've got to, you know, we're all realtors here. We got to realize that your average buyer consumer, if he's not a savvy investor, if you start throwing out terms that are like cap rate or whatever, sometimes they just go with it so they don't look stupid, but they really don't understand what does that mean. So with my performance sheet, I break it down black and white. This is what the property is bringing in. This is what your expenses are. This is what you have to borrow. This is what's going to cost you every month, including your mortgage. And after everything paid, this is what's going to leave you at the end of the month. And I break it down also percentage-wise. I give them that cap rate. So basically, if they look at me and I see they don't know what that means, I tell them, let's say you're buying it cash. If you're buying it cash, it gives you 7.9% cap rate. So if you put the same money in the bank, what do you get back? It goes to me 1%. Well, here you're getting 7.9 plus appreciation of the property. And then I break it down in terms, if you put 20% down and you get an X amount of dollars back, even after paying off the mortgage every month, you're making another return on that money that you put down. And let's say it's 12% and the property being paid off because your typical buyer likes that. They want to know what the bottom line is. They don't want to just hear cap rates and they want to know if I buy this and put this much money down, how much money I want to make a month after I pay everything. So this property, was it a multifamily? Yes. Correct. Yes, it's a three-family in okay. Dorchester. All right. So you don't have um, established rents. You're doing an estimation. No, no, this, no, no. These are all established rents. There, uh, so the whole property was rented already? Correct. Yes. Correct. And, you, and it's um, surprisingly, the, the one question that we had is George is asking a uh, not a premium price for what it is, but it's a premium price in that area. He's also getting premium rents in that area again because of the way the property is put together and and maintained okay uh, so um, let's talk materials and so this is a, a very average neighborhood I, I would guess this is an upscale by by any the, description uh, as Larry was a couple of days ago there there's uh, condo versions happening now on the same street where 
they're fetching over half a million dollars in the, in the Dorchester Franklin Zoo area. Okay. Uh, if you thought about that 10 years ago, people think you were crazy. There's no sure. way you're going to get half a million dollars here. Right. But you know those stories like South Boston, it's up and coming, up and coming, and now it's here. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with Somerville. Same thing with Jamaica Plain. Well, guess what? Dorchester is almost here. Sure. Almost here. Sure. And it's going to be here probably in the next five to seven years. And then you're not going to be able to buy with a conventional loan and actually make a profit on the property. What I noticed as I was driving down the street, Jim, is that uh, there was no trash anywhere on the street. The cars were were not beat up. They weren't beaters. Uh, it, the houses were taken care of. And it was in a neighborhood where that's not always the oh, case. Th- there's definitely nice neighborhoods in Dorchester. Uh, no, I'm, I'm more interested in your finishes. So... Um, what kind of appliances, what kind of um, counters, um, so faucets, dep- uh, what are you putting in? Depending on the neighborhood you're at, you also keep in mind we're here to make a profit, bottom line, correct? Um, if you were making a property, remodeling a property, developing a property in an area as this property is, there's certain things that you don't have to go all the way. One is central air conditioning. It's not common in that area, the house, to have central air conditioning or parking. People might ask if you have parking, but they're not surprised that you don't. Uh, If I was in Brockton, parking would be a must. I will never buy a property in Brockton that didn't have enough and sufficient parking for the residents to live there. Uh, Another thing I like to do is offer storage and laundry corn-operated machines in the basement for the tenants because that's an upsell for them because a lot of these properties don't even have washing machines and dryers in their units. Um, the appliance you said, I will stretch the doors a little bit wider, put 36 entry doors to get in that nice Whirlpool, Maytag, whatever appliance might be with a filter water, ice maker, and significant size, like 28 cubic feet or so. And when people come into the units and see all this and see the upgraded appliances, granite countertops I have in that property, 18 inch tile, refinished hardware floors, all brand new hardware, all recessed LED lighting in the kitchen, even a direct exhaust fan for the fumes when you're cooking to go out of the apartment to the roof. That's something you'll never find. But probably the biggest asset of that building that Larry's talking about, it's the two full bathrooms. That's another rare find to find. Each unit? Each unit. So you're talking about central air. And um, so what what were the ceiling heights there? Are you dropping ceilings to get nope. the ductwork in? Nope. Uh, if you wanted to do central on that property, you do have enough room between the floors. And if you had to drop the ceiling, actually this house has high ceilings. We're looking at almost like 9 or 10 feet high ceiling. It's a real Victorian classic home from the 1900s. So there's, there's definitely enough space in this property if they wanted to to put the central air. Okay, I misunderstood. I thought it had central air. No, that's what I would say. I won't. I wouldn't spend that money for okay. that. You just want to spend enough money that it's presentable, it's clean, and for where the area it is, it's going to bring X amount of dollars. In. And you want to get it under agreement before the hot wa- uh, hot weather. <laughs> well, if if the property is properly insulated and has updated windows, um, believe it or not, it it, it stays pretty cool. And uh, we are under agreement. 
and it will be sold before the hot weather. But the point is, this house was built in 1890. It's a very, very solid house. During the inspection today, the uh, this inspector I work with, uh, Jim Curran, has been at it for a long time. I've done many, many things with him. At one point, he called me over while he had the electrical panel so opened, and he said, come on over, Larry, and he looked at it. He said, this thing is a thing of beauty, and it was. So you have a good electrician. Do you have a good plumber? No. Plumber is so tough that uh, I was with a couple of developers from the North Shore, and they do big projects. Uh, and they have a construction company, and I, we're actually vacationing in Naples, and we're just talking shop like we always do. And, uh, and the plumbers are vacationing at Saint, in St. Bart's. No, they're not. Uh, <laughs> their solution to the biggest problem is, George, we hired a plumber full-time on our payroll. I'm like, there you go. That's what There's you your answer. <laughs> and, that's your why answer. You, and that's why you can't find a plumber. Okay, so we have a question. Today's question is from Petra L. from Anchorage, Alaska. Oh, wow. Anchorage, Thank you Alaska. for listening up there, yeah. Alaska. Yeah, no so uh, Petra's writing, how important is the valuation that a city or town places on a property or Zillow's estimate to determine an appropriate asking price? The appropriate asking price for an investment property, I assume, since we're talking investment property. It's not necessarily investment. Well, we could talk investment property first, but she's more general. But let's take investment property. Um, I understand there's a lot of platforms for real estate out there. You got Zillow, Trulia, Hotpads, and so forth, and everybody else out there. Zestimate. Is it accurate? I have to disagree. It's not accurate. Uh, What determines the price of a property? Of course, you have your comps, what property sold for around the area. But the most important thing is when it's an investment property, it's pretty much a small business. Even if it's a two-family or three-family, it's, it's, it's running like a business. So at the end of the day, what rents are you collecting? What's the carry-on cost for this business? And what do you expect for a return? Now, in the city of Boston, your average cap rate, and again, I don't want to get too fancy with the words here, might run you one to two to three percent tops. And some people are happy with that cap rate in the city of Boston because they believe that the property is going to appreciate, they probably get better tenants, they're probably better properties, easier to maintain. When people start leaving the Boston area and start going more further in the outskirts of the suburbs, they'll prefer a higher return. So depending on the location and what the income coming in and the appreciation of the property might bring you one day, you expect a certain return. So in most cases, people want to be at least at 6 to 8% cap rate. Okay. So, so we, we have to wrap this up. We so could talk all day about this, George. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and, and spending time with us. We'd like you to stay with us if, if you have the time. Yeah, yeah let's, let's get to the news. Well, we're... Uh, if we have, is, we have news today? We have lots of news today. And interestingly enough, it's all about uh, the real estate industry changing. Okay. Now we're talking about agents changing. There were two articles uh, that I picked up uh, this week. One of them is from Inman News, talking about switching brokerages. And they talked about the uh, people, agents, going from agency to agency. Usually, they're looking for something that they call a better fit, when what they really mean is more money in their pocket. So that's the, the uh, cap rate, 
uh, different cap rate than investment cap rate, how much they have to pay the agency to, for them to open the doors and keep them in business. Um, and then, but really, more importantly, it's a better fit. You know, uh, who are you working with? Who are the people around you? What is the culture like? Who's the leadership? Uh, what kind of business support do you get? These are the things that are far more important. If you are an agent out there and you're not getting calls from other agencies, you need to do a little more work. Because if you're getting any deals done, you're going to be recruited. I know, George, you were, you've been recruited from a number of uh, agencies. Yes, and that's how I went to Commonwealth uh, here in Massachusetts. I was recruited from them, and uh, I do get probably two to three inquiries or calls or emails from other agencies and other brokers to join them. happens to me quite often, and, and it's here. Anything timely? Uh, anybody getting sued this week? <laughs> Well, <laughs> let's switch back for a moment to uh, Remax and EXP. Okay. Uh, the update on that saga. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, oh, Remax and okay, I, I Remax know, I know e that one. Yep. Yep, Remax and EXP. Um, lots of agencies are are being um, attracted by EXP because of their uh, the way they do business. It's a virtual business. Not my kind of business. I think real estate is a, a full-body contact business. But uh, a lot of REMAX agents uh, and a big agency, one of the uh, Real Trends 1,000, they took their whole office over to EXP. Okay. Um, it happens. It does. It happens every day. Uh, every three to five years is what and the I'm statistics And I'm sure there's say. EXP brokers moving to um, the REMAX. We have an EXP broker that came here. So that's that's great news. Well, it's it's great news uh, for EXP um, because they pulled in a whale. Uh, probably not so great for Remax and their franchise because they lost the whale. Right. Well, uh, that's what happens when uh, a business model gets a little tired. I guess is all we can say. So, Broker Talk is sponsored today by Castles Unlimited, where you get the best real estate offers. Go to castlesunlimited.com for all your real estate needs. I want to thank everyone for listening today, and uh, please come back, and, and if you have any questions, uh, ask the questions, and we'll uh, answer you online. Thanks so much. Broker Talk is a weekly podcast hosted by real estate industry professionals and always dedicated to telling it like it is. Thank you for listening.